Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley in the philosophy department, and I'm joined as always by Anne-Marie Koistra in the history department. And this week's guest is Eric Leaflad, um, who has recently defended his dissertation in the area of practical theology or missional ministry. And we're going to talk to him about his work in practical theology, um, what it's like to do theology in a pandemic, and other such fun stuff. So thanks for joining us. Eric, welcome to Bookish at Bethel. It's always nice to see you, even if it's virtually. Although sometimes I catch a glimpse of Eric sort of scuttling into his office when I'm about to maybe teach my senior seminar class. You were doing that last night. You were scuttling your way into your office with another adult. I don't know what you were doing. I I think I broke protocol and brought a guest speaker to class. I'm not sure if that's legal anymore or not. Well, We'll just assume it is for those of you in power listening to this in the Bethel um, webs of power. Um, we had that all checked out. Eric, we were um, hoping to hear a little bit about this dissertation work that you have apparently successfully finished. And now I must actually refer to you as Dr. Leafblad. So yep. there's that fun thing. See, the problem is I have a real doctor in the family, like an actual medical doctor in the family. And so I still do, I still feel like I don't, I'm not really a doctor because, you know, like on an airplane, that whole scenario, like my sister could mm-hmm. say, like, yeah, I'm a doctor. And I'd be like, well, I am too. But, but you can give people better theological advice. Yeah. I, I guess I can cure their soul as they used to say back in the days. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, what was the question? What was my research? <laughs> yes. So what, what did you do? Yeah. Uh, so uh, broad parameters. Um, probably the most pervasive or I don't, yeah, I mean, probably pervasive is the right word. Probably the most pervasive issue facing my particular discipline of practical theology is the rise of religious disaffiliation, uh, which is sometimes called the rise of the nuns, Mm. N-E-S's, not N-U-N-S's, although that would be cool too. Yes. Um, And so this has been like, it's been various, it's been called different things like faith drifting or whatever, like all sorts of different things throughout the years, but it's been kind of an organizing locus for a lot of practical theologians for obvious reasons, because we reflect theologically on kind of the practice of ministry. Typically that's been in congregational context. So congregations are waning, obviously we're terrified for our discipline. Like, what are we going to do when there's no more churches? Um, Anyway, so I start there. I, I'm actually not that anxious about it. Um, I, I think it's, um, you know, obviously I care about people's faith and want them to have some sense of uh, there's some way of articulating the way that, that God acts in the world and, and how they sort of orient themselves to that action. Um, but I, I just, I don't always perceive people leaving the institution of the church as a problem. Sometimes I think it's more of a mirror. Um, and and uh, typically, well, okay, so anyway, so that's like a doorway into what my actual research is. I'm, I, 
I, I use it to get into kind of looking at um, how various responses to this so-called problem operate logically. In other words, like what's the logic that undergirds the response? Um, and, uh, and then I try to, so, so one of the things that I talk uh, a substantial amount about is um, by, by entering into dialogue with a social philosopher named uh, Charles Taylor, who talks about his big work is called a secular age. Um, and he argues that secularity is actually best defined, not as like the distinction between like religiosity and irreligiosity, but secularity is actually more of a, a mood or a feel or a sort of cultural milieu. Um, and his argument is that what actually happens with um, a secular age, and in some sense, we all live within it, is that the, the, the reality of the transcendent or God um, is somewhat implausible. And I think that's fair even for us as folks who would call ourselves believers is that like, I don't go to the doctor and hope that my doctor does some sort of enchanted work on me. I go to my doctor and I want my doctor to perform medicine on me. Um, and, and so in, in a certain sense, what Taylor has done is he's mapped a world in which um, the necessity of God as a, a sort of idea or hypothesis, or even in, in the way that I sort of confess uh, my faith, even the, the action of God or the agency of God is largely inconsequential to the world that we live in. I don't think that's true, um, but I think that's the way that our world operates. And I, I looked at a, a, a couple of significant sort of responses to the rise of religious disaffiliation and argued that more or less the logic of their ministerial approaches is entirely secular. That is to say, the idea was that ministry could be a kind of technological solution to a technological problem. That is, we don't know, we, we need better mechanisms for delivering faith from one generation to the next. And if we can do that, then bada bing, bada boom, they'll stay put. Um, and I, I argue that that's actually a two-dimensional problem or a two-dimensional solution um, to a, a flattened reality in which transcendence is implausible. So in other words, I think these, I think these solutions are actually perpetuating the notion that God is uh a nice little accoutrement for some people, but not really necessary for the world to work. Um, and so from there, I kind of move into some, some deeper sort of theological accounts of how we might think about God's action um, and uh, sort of end in a place by saying that uh, ministry. So I, I call those things typical tools. The idea is that the tools are sort of, um, imminent to their environment, so they, they work according to the logic of the environment. Um, I follow this other philosopher named Alvin Noy, and he argues that um, there are such things as what he calls strange tools, which are the sorts of tools that sort of break from the background of reality into the foreground and make us rethink reality. And so he argues art is actually a strange tool, that what the, that what the work of art is is not the actual thing that hangs on the wall or is in a museum. It's actually what happens between that which one is looking at or encountering and 
So the work of art is what it does to us um, and happens to us. And so I argue that ministry is like that. Ministry is actually a strange tool um, that that we don't have a lot of control over because it's a divine reality rather than a human reality, but one in which we participate um, when, you know, to use maybe a, a sort of cheeky way of speaking, like when God shows up, so to speak. So when we enter into these experiences of fullness that sort of outstrip our ability to articulate them, um, that's the strange work of ministry um, or the strange tool that ministry is. And so I argue like what the real response to sort of, faith drifting or religious disaffiliation is to become more like artists rather than technicians and um, turn towards narrative because narrative is deeply mysterious. Um, uh, turn towards uh, what I call contemplative environmentalists. So trying to, to structure environments that are um, more invitational to contemplative ways of being, I guess you might say. Uh, and then finally, um, neighborliness. So um, turning towards the world rather than away from it, which a lot of these approaches try to sort of shore up the, the faith environment as sort of a parochial cul-de-sac that keeps people bound within it. I'm actually trying to say that perhaps it, the solution is to release people into the world to potentially encounter the God who is strange rather than two-dimensionally flat and huh. imminent. So that's it in a nutshell. Did you, um, since you talked about like Charles Taylor and this secular versus non-secular or religious versus secular, um, coming from the Christian perspective, um, the sort of secular bad religious good and, and the way in which Christians have put themselves in a cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an author by the name of Daniel Seidel. I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote a book called God in the Gallery, um, where he talks about specifically this for art um, um, and literature, but he's thinking more about visual art. And he argues that this ridiculous distinction between secular and sacred um, mm -hmm. that he blames actually <laughs> Martin Luther um, for getting this <laughs> started mm -hmm. that art, art ended up being kind of instrumental or yeah. like educational. Um, and so it needs to teach and that's cool. If it teaches and it goes along with the sermon, that's cool. Um, but yeah. other than that, art has no, has no place. Um, and so, and certainly secular art is, is very, very distressing. Seidel calls instead for what he calls embodied transcendence. So the best distinction is not between secular and sacred, but between art that embodies transcendence and art that does not. Um, yeah. That sort of embodiment is the most important part. Yeah. So Taylor probably agrees with Seidel. Taylor doesn't like Luther at all. Well, that's not fair. Taylor <laughs> thinks that we end up with this sort of world that's excised of transcendence because of the Protestant Reformation, because this, this drive for reform is actually uh, what sort of turns us towards the ordinary and the mundane. Mm -hmm. And I, I think Taylor's wrong, frankly. Um, I don't think, and that's why I sort of, I sort of end in you actually have to go deeper into the mundane to, to find the transcendent or to like encounter God. Um, I, I, you all know me well enough. Like I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a big sacramentalist. Uh, 
nor am I super geeked about like, you know, um, shall we say magisterial traditions. Um, but I, but I share a sensibility, I think with Seidel in saying that, um, and this is what I think what he's trying to articulate links up with what I would say about, um, kind of the, the ministry approaches of being sort of tools of imminence mm-hmm. is that they are very epistemic. Um, like, and that's how we think about faith too. Like another project that I'm going to work on in relationship to this kind of next is I'm, I'm going to offer a, a, what I call a ministerial theology of faith. Um, Cause so much of faith, like the way that we talk about it is purely epistemic. It's purely about what we believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really Taylor calls that the excarnating impulse of secularity so rather than becoming in more incarnate and embodied it's we excarnate our faith into id ideas that exist you know away from us and so um i think that's probably similar to what seidel means between sort of art that teaches so you can use all sorts of different things to do that but the end result is actually not to inhabit those artworks or those even your own own life and i actually think that's part of what drives some of religious disaffiliation is that, um, I mean, there's all sorts of theories as to why people are leaving the church, um, but actually the data suggests most people are leaving the church simply because they're just like, eh, like it, it's a, it's a shrug of the shoulders. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's like, it's not really believable. So I guess I don't believe it anymore. So yeah. And they just kind of easily walk away. I think that, I think it's much hard. I think it's, I think you. I think it's much harder to walk away from something that you've had a profoundly embodied, almost transcendent experience within, even if you're not sure you believe it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard to leave something where, in the midst of say, um, you know, the death of a beloved grandparent, there was a community that that held embodied suffering with you Uh it's hard to walk away from even if you're unconvinced at a sort of theoretical level of some of the belief structures of that particular community so Mm -hmm. um i I think that's i think what i'm trying uh, what i'm trying to do and it sounds like seidel's trying to do too is move away from these instrumentalizing senses of experience Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a pedagogical thing for me too. Like I, I, I hate the instrumentality of American culture and, um, and I think it's deficient as a, as a framework for thinking about the human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it seems to compartmentalize um, people in the way and, and spirituality and uh, religious experience. I, my part of this is sort of a personal, I'm intrigued personally because I grew up in the evangelical tradition. My mother was a church choir director. And when the pastor would get up to pray before sermons, this is the way he always prayed every week. Now is the time for the son of man to be glorified. So it was like all of the stuff beforehand, God hasn't really been here, right? It was this amazing articulation of instrumentality that made my mom very upset because she was like, well, what was I doing? Why did right. I matter? Right. Well, and that's the, and that's the thing is like, there's, there's actually the, a theological reason for that. Uh, the, the sort of word response 
framework of theology, but what it misses, and, and I'm not saying that's good. I think the word is, can be proclaimed in a, a, a choral arrangement as much as in a sermon. Calvin and Luther are going to kill me, but that's fine. Uh, but, like, but you, one can uphold those sa- that same theological conviction without, I think, stripping or evacuating embodied experience of its importance. And, um, and not just in terms of teaching, but actually in the sort of like formative work of, of God's spirit calling forth our, our humanity. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that, in a sense, that's my, my whole sort of, not just my dissertation, but that's sort of my reason for doing what I do is I'm, I'm, I'm deeply disconcerted, honestly, about the state of, um, yeah, I guess faith um, in North America. I, I just, I think it's really quite vapid. Mm-hmm. And, um, but as, as one of my committee members said, uh, I, how did she put it? I, I, I used a lot of Carl Bart and um, she was like, well, I'm really encouraged by what you're doing, but just remember Bart couldn't find a congregation. So he had to preach, preach to prisoners at the end of his life. So good luck with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so it does feel like a little bit like Sisyphus rolling that hill up the boulder to have it come, you know, people like it in theory until you start to, to um, ask what it looks like. And then it becomes, it's not guaranteed. It's not, there's no guarantee that like, you know, there's no guarantee. In other words, like uh, maybe a way to put this would be to say, like, I, I remember I was explaining this one time to a uh, a sort of friend of mine that I worked with in Kansas city. And he said, okay, so which kid are you going to sacrifice? I was like, what? Like, I, I don't, that's such a weird question. Like, do I want my kids to be Christian? Yes. But like, do I think it's my task to sort of make sure they don't ever leave the church? And like my job in, as a sort of ministerial theologian is to create some sort of thing that will keep them. Ah, gosh, that seems really dehumanizing to my kids. Um, but I do think that's what a lot of people want is they want to make sure like, yeah, okay, Eric, great story sounds good. And, you know, contemplative environments sound nice, but what if, what, but what if that doesn't work? Well, I, that's the wrong question, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Eric, I'm going to jump in and ask you a question because you always talk about yourself as being this practical theologian. Mm-hmm. And I just am imagining you working away on this dissertation and then there's this i don't know epidemic outbreak yeah and i know just historically that like major tragedies can have a really interesting impact on the society and culture and i wonder how much you were thinking about how okay so we're seeing this drift if you will away from the established churches leading up to the pandemic, to what extent does the pandemic sort of change things, right? Because I can imagine, right, we've all been doing Zoom for the last year, and that has its pluses, but it has a lot of negatives. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, you know, in the, like, wow, we're all grappling with things we couldn't imagine grappling with. We're all doing this sort of isolated might there be sort of a 
huh, we thought we were moving this direction and then something. So anyway, your yeah. thoughts. Uh, well, so uh, a number of them. <laughs> I, one of the things that I think is, is true of the age that we live in, call it a secular age if you want, is that um, in addition to sort of this sense of kind of the, the implausibility of transcendence, it's also like everything is accelerated, right? Everything's faster. Um, and I think that, I think that, um, yeah, I don't want to put that. I, I think that makes it, I think that makes church way more challenging because um, part of what pushes that acceleration is this need to acquire resources to guarantee one's future. So the future, so the present, it, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, but the present is actually never the present because the present is always about what it's going to get us to in the future. Right. So like my kids are totally over-involved in sports because somehow that's going to get them a spot on the varsity team next year. And then if they're on the varsity team as a freshman, then maybe they'll play in college and maybe they'll get a scholarship. Like, so we're not even playing basketball to play basketball with our friends. We're playing basketball because it accrues some sort of future good for us. And so that makes church really hard because what church is actually trying to do, I think is uh, make us stop, slow down and wait for God to act. So now throw the pandemic on top of that. And churches went into like crazy acceleration mode. Like how do we get people to join Zoom? How do we do online services? How do we do all this stuff? And I actually think one of the things, so so that's the bad, like that's the downside. And that's where I do think, um, I think we're going to see an even greater sort of drift away from the church because I think a lot of people realize like, huh, I don't, the, the church doesn't give me any resources mm-hmm. for the future. Um, and so I think they'll walk more away. However, I do think there is um, the, I think with the mental health data that we're seeing, I think there's a recognition or a, a reawakening in some sense for the need for embodied experience mm-hmm. and connection with human beings. And I do think this is something the church can do and can be for people. However, it's going to mean the church has to to shift away from the idea, I guess, away from market logics that like we have to be bigger, better, stronger, faster. Um, And I actually think they have, I think we have to think more in terms of smaller, um, relational mm-hmm. and I don't I, I I mean maybe it's the weather or the end of the semester I'm not super hopeful that imagination exists among a lot of pastors um, yeah that's true except that I would also sort of as I'm thinking about just some of the things you've been talking about where I feel like I've seen church lately was um, even this past week in the aftermath of the verdict mm-hmm that at George Floyd Square, there are people wearing what looked like sort of security vests, but they didn't have security on the vest. They had chaplain mm-hmm. on the vest. And I thought, wow, like somebody is thinking, right? Like somebody's thinking, 
this is, I mean, people were gathering there very organically, right? I mean, this was an organic, we're here and um, people recognize that. And, and it was very, and that was very interesting. And, and it was uh, on a bleak day, um, a little, a little bit of hope, maybe. Yeah. Maybe an well, example of what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, I, you know, I think a lot of, um, a lot of my sort of models for what ministry is um, actually don't come from sort of the clerical paradigm or the, the professional sort of pastoral. They come more, I mean, I think pastors do this, good pastors do, but um, they do come more from sort of the, the caregiving side of, of mm-hmm. ministry. Um, because I do think that's one of the areas, you know, I had a really perceptive student four years ago ask me like, what's the point? of ministry truly like, because a lot of it for, for her was like leadership development or organizational influence or whatever. She's like, I should just do some other major or like go into business because I can make more money doing that. So tell me why I shouldn't. And I, you know, that's a, a really good question. And one of the things I said is that I, I actually think ministries like chief good is to be the one sort of profession, if you will, who are curious about where God is in the world and willing to go there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. like, and that's good chaplains do that. They, they show up at events, not to take charge, not to like, not to be in charge, but simply to respond when, um, when there's, something of God's work happening. And that's really good pastoral care too, is like, you don't go into a pastoral care setting and go, all right, marriage is falling apart. Let's get it fixed. You go in and you're like, let's sit with this and, and, and figure out how we can bear witness to, to God's redemptive presence. Yeah. Well, and again, in the optic of that day, it was just so fascinating because Obviously, I didn't hear what was being said, but I could see even just the touching, right? Like they were just, they were, they were just physically touching people. And I thought, wow, you know, that was quite, you know, ministerial, if you will, in the sense of this is what people need in the midst of a, you know, social distancing, you know, whatever. Well, Eric, it sounds so... I asked my um, senior seminar students last night, they had just finished their first drafts. And I said, you know, as you're thinking about the process, what for you was a, a good moment in your work? So if there is like a, a thing in your, how many pages of, of work do we even want to say? It was a little over 200. Okay. So 200, 200 pages of wisdom and great um, thoughts what what's like something that you're maybe most pleased with? Um, hmm. the acknowledgments page was really well done. I thought. Oh great! <laughs> I know some of my students said I got it done. I was like, that's totally fine. Yeah. I mean, that is honestly what feels yeah. best is to have it done. Um, I I mean, I think you know, like with any dissertation, you're trying to make a contribution to your particular guild, and um. You know, I think I'm probably most proud of uh, my my third chapter is kind of a, a deep dive into this guy named James Loader, um, who's 
well known in our field, um, but his he has a posthumous work that hasn't been engaged a lot. And so I, I, I engaged that particular work pretty deeply and also kind of added to it a little bit from my own kind of theory construction. And so um, that's probably what I'm most proud of in it, because I think that's kind of like, you know, if I, you know, if I'm at one of these nerd conferences or whatever, like I, I do feel like I actually know that like I might be one of the four or five people in, in our respective small, small, small puddle of a pond who could say something definitive about his work and, and be challenged at a conceptual level, but not at a sort of expertise level. And that, I, you know, that feels good to come out of something and feel like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an, like I'm an expert on this particular aspect. And again, it's, it's, you know, so small that, whatever but um that feels good to kind of be like you know somebody potentially you know 10 years somebody wants to do a dissertation on motor they'll probably have to talk to me so yeah nice excellent so the other question that we're sort of intrigued by right now and this could connect as well to what you've just been doing um is how this affects teaching Um, your own teaching, and then how you might radically alter the humanities program from a theological perspective, given the work that you've done, the pandemic that we're in. I mean, we're all in this process of rethinking things. Um, Have you given any thought to what what theology texts we should be reading that we're not? Yeah, Um, I would would say, like, so my wheelhouse is kind of that humanities for time period. I mean, I like the old, old folks, but um, I'm more of a contemporary sort of theologian. Um, so I actually think Gustavo Gutierrez should be included. He's a Latin American liberation theologian, um, kind of started that conversation in Latin America, though he was in conversation with other, other forms of liberation theology. But his big, his big contribution was to really articulate probably not um, not the first time, but probably the first time put in this particular way, what's called the God's preferential option for the poor, um, which is a really, I think, significant contribution to theology in sort of the late 20th and early 21st century. So um, I, I would say that would be one text that I wish we could assign or, or should assign. I think it would, it, it, it maps onto Moltmann stuff, Mm-hmm. Some nice ways, um, but Moltmann's a sort of classic German theologian. Well, no, no, he's not. He he's a German theologian, no question. But he's not a classic German theologian. But um, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, and I, and I think Gutierrez would would like. I think our students, I think Bethel students, would resonate a little bit with the way that he's really attendant to kind of context or people's kind of on the ground experience before he is just the, the big idea type thing. Eric, I'm um, not, this is not my wheelhouse. And so when I think liberation theology, I tend to think Protestants. Is Gutierrez though within the Protestant wheelhouse or is he part of the Catholic church? He's Catholic. Um, so Latin American liberation theology is actually st- like more a, a Catholic mm-hmm. movement that, that then, some Latin American evangelicals and uh, not really any, well, that's not true. Some mainline Protestants, but mostly 
mostly evangelicals, but it's mostly driven by Catholics. Like Saint uh, Pope Francis is comes out of that mm-hmm. tradition, he's a Latin American liberation theologian, mm-hmm. which is why he's Pope Francis, right? Like he right. chose somebody who sort of found his own life um, in and among the poor, and and that's why he spends a lot of time in market places and where people are rather than sort of sitting in the seat of, of St. Peter. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, and I, it's just, a, I mean, Latin American liberation theology is a really fascinating theological movement. It's um, in some ways, part of the reason I'm, I'm interested in it is I actually think there's a, a model here that could be helpful for thinking about religious disaffiliation in North America. So like, Latin American liberation theology really starts um, from not, not because some scholar or priest sat in his office and thought, hmm, I want to come up with a new theological system. It was more rooted in these kind of grassroots struggle in, in and among villages where people were, uh, where, where there was governmental corruption and the church was kind of a handmaiden to some of that governmental corruption. And so, um, honestly, it was these kind of rogue nuns, N-U-N-S's, who, who helped start these things called base communities, which are, are essentially house churches in these villages in Central and, and Northern South America. And they basically, like, are really devout, faithful Catholic people who just feel like the institution of the church had become so corrupt and so wicked that they started their own little reformation. And uh, because of that, these priests were convinced, and there's Archbishop Oscar Romero, who's a big part of that too. Um, and, and honestly, the, it's, it's had, a, I mean, you have a Latin American liberation theologian pope now, mm-hmm. and it really started with people in their context um, kind of trying to be faithfully Catholic, but not, but outside the bounds of the institutional church in some ways. So, so in other words, the, the sort of local ministry had a transformative impact on the institution of the church. And I wonder if that's not a kind of model or exemplar for some of what's happened. Because some of the reason people are leaving the church in, in, our, in the North American context is because of things like, you know, cover up of sex abuse, cover up of, um, you know, sexual misconduct, all that kind of stuff. And so people are just like, well, screw this. I don't want to be a part of such a messed up institution. Well, we have some folks who've traveled that road and figured out how to remain faithful. And incidentally, it made a pretty significant impact on the church all the way to the Vatican. So, Well, and I like that you're bringing up an example in the 20th and then obviously into the 21st century of kind of not an Erasmus figure, but an Erasmus type of approach in Mm -hmm. terms of someone who can see that the church has problems, but remains in the church mm-hmm. that offers sort of an, and so I like the idea that not only does that point us to the current Pope, but it also points us back uh, to Erasmus. Cause I think a lot of the more Protestant students at Bethel don't often recognize the diversity, if you will, within the Catholic church. So I think yeah. that that would be really interesting mm-hmm. Good yeah. suggestion, Eric. Yeah. I like it. I totally thought you were going to say Kierkegaard, though. I did, too. Kierkegaard, I'd love for us to read Kierkegaard and Schleiermacher. I thought about Schleiermacher, too. but uh, Well, it's good that you can still surprise me after all this time, Eric. Hey, I would keep doing my best. 
Okay. Well, so now I think it's our traditional ending question, although we always feel like we have to alter it for you. So I'm going to ask what's on your nightstand, but you know, as you are a rebel with a cause, feel free to answer that however you want to answer that. All right. So uh, I actually haven't listened to a lot of music lately, so I don't have anything new that, (laughs) that I would offer. Um, Books. Uh, I'm reading Hartman Rosa's uh, book called Resonance, which is he sort of works with Taylor. So that's my nerdy, like trying to figure out where I'm taking my I'm trying I'm going to try to get my dissertation published this summer. So I'm trying to I don't want to publish it as a dissertation. So I'm trying to, like, figure out how I'm going to push it out into something good instead of dry. Um, so that's what I'm reading for that. But then I also read Don DeLillo's, uh, newest novel silence. Um, and it was, it it was pretty good. It's short too. So it's kind of, it's kind of about like, it's set on Super Bowl Sunday in 2022. He finished it right before the pandemic happened, but basically what happens is like everybody's, uh, uh, electronic devices, crash like everything just crashes and so you're sort of forced to like figure out how do you talk to people can't check out it it's it's typical delillo like weird sort of i don't know uh existential but also just kind of dystopian existential yeah Um, it's it's, it was fine it was good good that's good i first read don delillo in 1993 eric that's probably the oregon extension oh yeah yeah. So that was, that was my introduction. That makes sense in that context. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, Carrie, what I, I can guess what's on your nightstand. What's on your nightstand, Carrie? Yeah. Well, I mean, Ulysses. So James Joyce, Ulysses. And then, um, well, I guess both, even though my, my fun nighttime reading is nerdy since Ulysses is my fun nighttime reading. And then the other one is um, True Enough, which is this work on art and epistemology by Catherine Elgin. So very nerdy stuff right now. Yeah, very nerdy. I will um, hold up for the people that are able to see it. I finally cracked that sucker open last night. Hey, yo. Sam, just, just pretend you're not hearing this. Promptly fell asleep, but I was also just very tired. Um, I will have to Wikipedia and uh, get the layout before I come back to Ulysses, which I will tonight. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also, um, I cracked into um, and got into the first chapter so far of this book, Forged in Crisis. The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. And the first chapter is about, um, oh, Shackle Ford, is that his name? Shackleton, sorry, Shackleton, who um, is the guy who is trying to get his men back to safety after a failed Antarctic exploration. And boy, howdy, is she a great writer. Um, And these are obviously very interesting people. And her big argument is that leaders are not born they are made mm-hmm. and they're people who figure out a way to rise to the situation. And she says that a really good leader is somebody who can make the people um, who are following this leader um, to be better than they are. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh, that's very interesting. And I think she feels like um, some of the best leaders are um, not charismatic and are maybe introverts. So intriguing in all sorts of ways and i'm only in the first chapter so i would i would highly recommend it the author it is nancy 
Kane, although it looks like it should be Cohen because it's K-O-E-H-N, but it's Kane. And she, of course, is a, a graduate of Harvard who now mm-hmm. teaches at Harvard. So, of course. Of course. Anyway. Um, any any last words, Eric? I, I got to tell, though, quickly a, a very quick story about Eric and I having a moment together. I think that there was a moment when I sent you an email and did I recommend Foy Van's Burden or I said I was just yeah. had that on constant repeat? Yeah. Yeah, you did. And Eric, and Eric, what was your response? My response was, I love I love me. I don't remember. I think I said something somewhat snarky, but. I, I love Floyd Vance. He's great. It was so, it was a moment though for the, yeah. like the two of us. I, I think. know who Floyd Vance is. Carrie, do you know who Floyd Vance is? No, yeah. I, I'm missing all. He's context. a very obscure, like singer songwriter type sort of, thought, but he's great. He's one of those good ones that nobody knows about. Yeah. The line in the, the song that I keep ha- like that ha- is basically on constant repeat is, let me carry your burden. And I'm, it's very soothing to me because I'm like, yes, Foy, please do carry it for carry me. Carry my burden, please. <laughs> anyway, um, folks, um, thanks for listening. And again, you have been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.